And I want to turn our attention to God's Word this morning, found in the 13th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. And when you have found it, I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to hear God's Word. I want to speak with you this morning on this subject, signed, sealed, delivered, that through faith in Jesus Christ, God speaks his good word over us, forming and empowering us to live a life for his glory. And I know in the bulletin it says that we are reading uh, verses 20 to 21, that is uh, the focus of this message, but I want to take a bit of pastor's privilege and start in verse number 17 and read through verse number 21. Hear God's word. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, to do, urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Would you pray with me? Yes, you can take your seats first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is not dead, but that is alive, is active, is sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And, oh God, the the confession for us is that we all are in this place naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And that's good news, Lord, because that means you know precisely what we stand in need of this morning. And so would you be pleased to take these, my weak and unworthy efforts in your word, and use them to meet us where we are and give us what we need. Well, God, if we need faith, would you be gracious, give us the gift of faith this morning. If we need to be encouraged, would you, through the preaching of your word, encourage us in your gospel. If we need to be corrected, Lord, would you in your mercy correct us. That we would live not for ourselves, but for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, very often as I am driving from place to place, I will uh, tune into uh, sports talk radio as I drive. And I remember on one occasion a conversation that the two uh, talk show hosts were having about coaching football at the professional level. 
It was the off-season, and as is the case with every off-season in the NFL, several teams were in search for a new head coach. And one of the hosts was a former uh, professional player, and so the other host asked him, what would you look for in a head coach? And this former player said, if I were a general manager and I were hiring a coach, I'd want to look for a guy who can motivate men. You got to understand, he said, this is different from coaching college ball. You're not coaching 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. You're coaching men who are in their 30s, and, and many of them are multi-millionaires. So I need a guy who can motivate men to perform at the professional level. That skill, the ability to, to motivate people to do something is one that we regularly associate with, with good and strong leadership in every sphere, in sports, in business, in the military, in, in politics, and even, yes, in the church. Now, frankly, right, pastors can become popular and even attain celebrity status based on their ability as a good motivator. And here's what I find interesting when we consider our text this morning. We're at the end of, of the letter to the Hebrews, and the subject of leadership dominates the last words that their pastor wants to leave them with. The focus of our message this morning, again, is verses 20 and 21, but I read from verse 17 to emphasize this point. The pastor tells his congregation in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, and then he tells them why. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls. In other words, obey them because they are caring for your souls. As he focuses on the leadership within the church and the church's response to her leaders, he says nothing about them as dynamic preachers and teachers. No, the focus here is on the care of the flock and their role as shepherds. And I love what he does. First, he reminds them that they receive care from their leaders, and then he calls their attention uh, to the fact that our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, and that through him, God works in us what is pleasing in his sight. That former NFL player said that teams need to look for coaches who can motivate men to perform at, a, at the professional level. And here is the deal. As human beings, we are called to, to live, to perform, if you will, in a certain way and for a certain purpose. And God, who knows that we can't perform the way we ought if left to ourselves, provides for us the good shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And this great shepherd doesn't just lead us by motivating us to try harder and to, and to do better. He is the source through whom we are given every good thing that we need to live this life of faith that he calls us to. In Jesus Christ, we are signed, sealed, and delivered into a life of faith for the glory of God. And the pastor in this benediction, this good word that he leaves with them in verses 20 and 21, he, he weaves together three threads that, that he has been working on in this entire letter. And we're going to explore them with these three words. We're going to talk about peace, promise, and purpose. Peace, 
promise and purpose. The the pastor, as he comes to he comes to the close of this letter, he tells them down in verse number 22 that we didn't read that he has only written to them briefly, he said, and he appeals to them to bear with his word of exhortation. In this benediction, as he is weaving through uh, these three strands he's been weaving in the letter, the first strand is peace. What was the life situation of the recipients of this letter? What were they going through? They were facing persecution for being followers of Jesus Christ. They were catching hell in the here and now because of their commitment to the Lord. And they're in danger of drifting away from the faith because of the persecution that they're under for following Christ. And they want a release, they want relief from the pressure. Following Jesus is costing them more than they anticipated. And so the question they're asking is, is it worth it? Isn't there an easier way to be right with God? We don't want to forget about you, God. We just want less suffering. Maybe folk will like us more. Uh, uh, Maybe folk will stop treating us so badly if we make some slight modification to what it means to be a Christian. And then folk will be okay with this gospel that we are preaching and trying to live out. And for them, the practical outworking of this temptation was to return to the sacrificial and ceremonial forms of worship in the temple. And over and over and over again in the letter, their pastor has to remind them that those things were just a shadow. Those things were were just a shadow pointing forward to the good things that were to come in Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus has come, he's saying, why would you go back to types and shadows? He tells them in chapter 10 and verse 36, you all have need of endurance. And then in chapter 12 and verse 14, he lets them know, here's one aspect to what this endurance looks like. He says to them, strive for, pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And now when he gets to the final good word that he's going to give them, the first thing he says is that their God is the God of peace. They're experiencing difficulty and hardship and are trying to find relief by their own way and their own means. And the pastor is reminding them, here's what's true. Your God is the God of peace. That you actually had a bigger problem, a much more critical problem than the ones you're facing now. You and God were enemies. You weren't at peace with him. You had strife with God because of your sin, but God took care of that in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That through Jesus Christ, he has made peace with those who were his enemies, and now, through faith in Jesus, you know God as the God of peace. And because you have peace with God, you can now pursue peace with others. You see, in Jesus Christ, the peace that we are brought into with God will never change. 
Once you have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he will always, always and forever be for you the God of peace. You are signed and sealed and delivered in Jesus Christ into this life of peace with God forever. Philip Edgecombe Hughes so powerfully writes in his commentary on this verse, he says, the peace here, which God is the author, of which God is the author, is primarily the peace of the gospel, the peace which has been established or reestablished between man and his creator by the blood of Christ's cross, the peace of God in Christ Jesus, which passes all understanding, peace In short, he says, in his deepest and fullest sense, it is the God of this peace which speaks forgiveness and acceptance to man at the very heart of his being and which should permeate the whole of his existence in all its relationships and vicissitudes whom our author invokes here. Let me ask you this question this morning. What is going to enable you to endure or to overcome and press through the, the, the pernicious and polarized climate of our current cultural moment in order to pursue peace with everyone? What is going to enable you to do that? It's being secure in the truth that you are at peace with God forever. Therefore, you don't have to succumb to the fear of pursuing peace with others when there are deep disagreements and strife. Where where are you striving to overcome the pernicious polarization uh, uh, in our culture? the pernicious political polarization and pursue peace with those with whom you disagree as a testimony to the truth that your God is the God of peace. Where you're striving to overcome the the pernicious racial and ethnic and socioeconomic hostility and polarization as a witness to the world that our God is the God of peace. You see, people specialize in polarization. People specialize in division, but God specializes in peace. And this peace, this peace is rock solid. It is rock solid and secure because it was secured by a promise. This peace wasn't secured by a promise made first between God and us, no, but a promise made by God to himself. You and I, we make uh, promises in this life. We make promises in this life, and, and typically the more serious promises have to be secured by something of value. In other words, your word just ain't enough. All right, when you go into a dealership to, to buy a new vehicle, but, but you don't have all the cash in hand to pay for it all, all out of pocket, right? You can't just shake the salesperson's hand and say, here's a few dollars. I'm good for the rest of it. Uh, I promise I'll pay. Give me the keys. 
No, you got to sign on the dotted line. You got to demonstrate that you have a history of keeping your, your financial promises. You got to demonstrate that you're able to pay that car note. Why isn't your word good enough? Because people break their promises all the time. People lie. Even if they didn't mean to do it, they break their promises all the time. And I love, I love what the pastor said to them back in chapter 6 of this letter in verses 13 to 18. He was talking about the the promise that God made uh, to Abraham uh, looking back in, in the book of Genesis. And he says that when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had nobody greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We can hold tightly to the hope that is set before us, the reality that we have peace with God forever. Why? We can do so because it's impossible for God to lie. And from chapter 6 to chapter 10 of this letter, he's going to develop and expand upon the reality that Jesus is the guarantor of a new and a better covenant. He's the, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, at the end of the letter, he brings that thread back together when he says, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. How was our peace secured? God raised Jesus from the dead. He's not only the God of peace, but he's the God of power. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And he says he did it by the blood of the eternal covenant. Don't miss that. He spends a lot of time in chapters 8 to 10 talking about Jesus as a mediator of a new and better covenant. The Hebrews as members of the new covenant community are not to give in to the temptation to go back under the old covenant rules and regulations that are now obsolete. And here for the first and only time, he speaks not of the old covenant or the new covenant, the eternal covenant. Jesus' sacrificial death of Calvary, the blood that was spilled at the, blood, at the cross was the blood of the eternal covenant. Back in chapter 9, the pastor says that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he entered once for all into the heavenly holy places. And when he went in, he didn't go in with the blood of goats and calves. He went in with his own blood. The pastor says, thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption for us. And when he did that, it was the fulfillment of an eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son. 
This is how he could say in chapter 12 in those words we heard earlier in the service that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that the cross was not the end. How did he know? Because he had an eternal agreement with his Father. And what was that agreement? That there was a world full of sin-sick people who are full of rebellion and disdain for God, who have no hope of living right. And so the Son covenanted with the Father to come to this messed up world, live a life of perfect obedience to his Father, and die as the perfect sacrifice for sin, so that everyone who comes through faith to God in Jesus Christ might be made right with God. This benediction ties the bow. It ties the bow on the gift of God in Jesus Christ that the pastor talked about way back in chapter 2 of this letter when he said, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, we are signed, sealed, and delivered because of the covenant between the Father and the Son that was signed, sealed, and delivered in eternity. We are the beneficiaries of the promise God made to himself. He said, as I quoted from chapter 2 and verse 18, the pastor says that because Jesus suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Well, what's the help that we get because God has fulfilled his promise to himself? In other words, what's the purpose of the promise? We find it right here in this benediction in the third thread. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. May he equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the purpose. May he equip you with everything good so that you may do his will as he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The purpose, in other words, of the promise is our performance. It's so that our lives will be lived by faith, striving to do the will of God, submitting our lives to to his will and to his way. Listen, Jesus, he says, is the great shepherd of the sheep. He leads his people. And he does so not simply by shouting motivational commands to us. Through 
the eternal covenant he has secured for us the provision that we need to do God's will. The word translated as equip in, uh, in this benediction has the sense of, of furnishing someone with something. And the pastor has used that verb twice before in the letter. He used it in chapter 10 and verse 5 when he says, consequently, when, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. It's translated as prepared there. And then in chapter 11 and verse 3, he says, by faith we understand that the universe was created, same word, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And both of those occurrences draw us in to grasp God's creative activity in providing what's necessary. Here in the benediction, it's the same thing. He furnishes us with every good thing that we may do as well. And notice that's just a general, every good thing that we may do his will. In chapter 10, he said that Christ, in ushering in the new covenant, was doing the will of God. And then later in that chapter, when he's exhorting them to keep pressing on, he says in the verse I already quoted, verse 36, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what's promised. They are to endure in doing God's will. Let me wrap it up this way. This past week, I was here in Dallas teaching a leadership and discipleship class for the Dallas campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. And whenever I teach on, on leadership, I utilize what, uh, what our confessional documents say, the Westminster Logic Catechism in particular, what it says to us about what duties the Lord requires of leaders and what sins the, the Lord forbids leaders to commit, all gleaned from a robust understanding of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And one of the things that the catechism rightly says is a duty of leaders toward those they lead is to provide all things necessary for soul and body. And one of the things that, one of the sins that leaders can commit, they, they say, is to require things that, that, peop, that the people that they lead do not have the power or the ability to carry out. And we see this in human relationships all the time. Like I can, as a father, promote my, provoke my children to, to anger. I can exacerbate them by requiring them to do things when I haven't furnished them with what they need for the task, and therefore they don't have the ability to do what I've commanded them to do. The amazing thing with God is that he doesn't just bring us to himself making peace with us through the blood of Jesus' cross and then say, now go live a life of obedience to me. He furnishes us with every good thing. He provides and equips us. He makes us complete in every good thing so that we may do his will as he works in us what's pleasing to him. As a matter of fact, it has to be that way. 
Because the work he's giving us to do is the work that's pleasing to him. And we need him to give us the means to do it if it's going to be pleasing to him. Listen, he makes us complete. The purpose of all of this, the, the, the peace that we've been brought into uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, the peace that we have with God, the, the promise that was revealed through the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son has a, has a direct purpose that we would live to the praise and glory of God doing his will. He has poured out on us every good thing we need for life and holiness. And what's the proper response to that? What's the proper response to that? He, he ends the letter in the same way that he began the letter. When he said uh, formally in many times and in many ways at the opening of the letter, God spoke to us, through, to our fathers through the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son by whom he created the universe. He, the son, is the radiance of the glory of God the exact representation of his nature. And now, what is our response to all this peace and this promise? It is the same thing to, through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory, now and forevermore. We praise God. We give him glory because he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has brought us to himself he has given us a peace that we could not acquire on our own, making us ambassadors of peace into this world that is broken and polarized. And he gives us every good thing we need to do it to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are our peace, that you have brought us into an eternal relationship of peace with you. And that you are so gracious and kind that you lavish us with the riches of every good thing that we need to live this life of faith and obedience to you. Would you encourage us with this truth, not just today, but every day, even as we leave this place, to the praise and glory of Christ. Amen.